This podcast is part of the Acast Creator Network. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to The Stand with Eamon Dunphy. Now, may you live in interesting times is uh, an ancient Chinese curse. I always thought that it was uh, someone wishing you well, but apparently it is not. We certainly live in interesting times when you consider what has happened in the last five or six years. Brexit, a very big event, the COVID pandemic, uh, the rise of Donald Trump, a reality TV star and a rather colorful businessman who didn't always pay his bills, becoming president of the United States, Putin's war at the moment, the phenomenon of mass immigration, which is worldwide now, Europe and uh, America. There is, of course, the creation of the European Union, the arrival of social media and the internet, and a growing sense that the West is faced with a threat from authoritarians like Putin and like President Xi uh, and the Chinese. So these are certainly interesting and in many cases tragic times. And history has always been, and I think for most of us, is of real fascination. And in Ireland in the last couple of years, we've had cause to reflect on how we got to where we are today, the various anniversaries of the Civil War, of 1916, and all of that uh, have been well discussed. But today we're going to talk about history itself. And it's a pleasure to welcome to the program one of our uh, most eminent uh, academics and scholars, Dimit Farrater, is the Professor of Modern Irish History at UCD, and he is a regular contributor to the stand and writes a weekly column in the Irish Times and makes history understandable. Dermot, thank you very much for joining us. There's a festival of history running at the moment in the libraries around Dublin. It's up and running now and will run until the 16th of October. It's free to go, to go and it's very, very interesting. And I wanted to talk to you about history in its broadest sense. For example, a quote I have in front of me from Henry Ford, who didn't invent the motor car, but he did invent the idea of mass-produced motor cars, the Ford Model 8 in 1916. And he was very agitated by people questioning his ability to do it. And he said, 
and it's an often heard quote, history is more or less bunk. And this was a sort of derisive remark. He, He subsequently recanted somewhat. The other interesting quote is from Winston Churchill, who said, history is written by the victors, which makes an awful lot of sense. And George Orwell, one of the great 20th century intellectuals, in my, in my view, said, who controls the past controls the future. Who controls the present controls the past. Dermot, let me ask you first about the purpose of history from your perspective. From my perspective, I would see the purpose in a very positive light, not surprisingly, perhaps, as something that's intrinsic to citizenship. And we've had very interesting debates in this country in recent years about the status of history, about the place of history on the curriculum, about the need for for younger people to be exposed to history for for as long as is possible. Um, I would see it as a great assistance in the maturation of any society as well. Because if you don't have a knowledge of the past, you're kind of burdened with this lack of, of perspective or, or empathy or, or wisdom. But it's also about equipping us with the tools to challenge myth, myth yes. myth, to challenge inaccuracies. Now, we have deliberate amnesia about a variety of different things. I mean, that phrase, for example, was used by, you might remember F.X. Martin, yes. uh, who was a very dynamic uh, historian of, of much earlier times, but he was very interested in, in the late 1960s in what he referred to as the deliberate amnesia that we had uh, about certain matters in our history. And in that sense, history, of course, is about forgetting as well as remembering. But yes. it does allow us, you know, if, if we have a proper knowledge of history to try and uh, debunk uh, myths, but also challenge the propagandists and really invented versions of the past. And if you're interested in the formation of identity, or the significance of of nuance or context, you need that historical knowledge. And you can bring it to all of your experiences, all walks of life. If we don't reflect on history, I'd make the argument, we're actually rejecting an essential cultural endeavor because we're not thinking about evidence. We're not thinking about proof. We're not thinking about the the methods of researching the past. And therefore, we're not empowering uh, ourselves, you know. So there's there's an onus on us to try and see and understand past events as contemporaries saw them. And it's not necessarily a question, Eamon, of learning the lessons of the past, which is the other quote that is very common. It's really a question of understanding who we are, because the recent events that you've referred to, for example, would suggest that humanity doesn't necessarily get any wiser. So we're not necessarily studying history to, to get great solace or optimism or hope. But at the same time, we are living through a period where we get all of these fragments and bits and pieces of information. We're very, we're a very information busy society and world now, but we're not necessarily knowledge oriented. Yes. And that for me, again, is, is, is where history can be crucially important because it encourages us to go beyond the, uh, the fragments. And we're actually living at the moment through one of the most vicious history wars. Yes. If you consider in particular what's going on in Ukraine, the aggression towards Ukraine, the historical mission that Putin has set himself in relation to the, you know, the resurrection of the imperial project. It's really a 19th century uh, project. Yes. And of course, that's also about surrounding yourself with a very small and narrow group of ideologues um, who will claim a monopoly on historical truth or what they call historical truth. And that justifies them in their mission to, you know, reunite the Russian lands as they'd see it, but also to liquidate, 
your internal enemies who are standing in the way of that. So history and the abuse of history can be enormously dangerous and, and destructive. And the other side of that with Ukraine at the moment is that President Zelensky can tap into that idea that Ukraine does have a legitimate national history and a nationalism, and it can draw on the past as well. It's in a very difficult position physically as well, because it's a borderland and it's always been at the crossroads. Um, and he can try and embolden then a, a sense of Ukrainian nationalism that involves drawing on, on historic oppression, as well as what's going on, the terror that's going on at the moment. The rise of Donald Trump, Dermot, is one of, I take it you agree, one of the most surreal experiences of my lifetime, I will say. He was a reality TV star. Mm. He is a dodgy, or was always a dodgy businessman. He is flamboyant. He was really a kind of liberal who was in favor of abortion. And, you know, he was a kind of New York Democrat. And he emerges now as a real threat to his own country, the United States, for falsifying history, claiming the last election was stolen. He has a mass movement behind him. 69% of Republican voters believe that Joe Biden is not the legitimate president of the United States mm. of America and therefore the leader of the free world, one has to say. What do you make of that as a historian? And what resonances are there from the past with which to compare it? It's a dangerous fascism. That's what it is. And I'd agree with the current President Joe Biden in relation yes. to that. I mean, I know there's strategizing going on at the moment in relation to the midterm elections and so on. But when you consider the rise of fascism at an earlier stage and what was involved, again, in distorting history and falsifying history, and it's not just about, you know, the more recent history, you referred there to the denial of the yes. election result and the legitimacy of, of the electoral process. That's one aspect of it. But there's a wider aspect of it, which is built around that very crude and brutal slogan, make America great again. Yes. That assumes, of course, uh, that you are resurrecting a great historic America. Yes. And like the history of any country, um, of course, that involves uh, not just a distortion, but a, really a brutal simplification. So he's he's engaged in that process as well. He's somebody who we know, of course, is profoundly ignorant about yes. history and many other things. He doesn't read. He's not interested in the past. Um, and this is another form of... of um, the debasement of politics in a more general way. Um, it's not just, I mean, obviously the Trump, the Trump problem is again bound up with this fear about decline. And that was common at, at earlier stages as well, both in the 19th century and the 20th century. And even. Decline in what sense? The, in, the, in the case of, of America and the Republican. Party, which well, are he we has still now... a superpower? You know, I mean, yes. if we have lost our uh, traditional uh, lenses through which, you know, we can reflect our greatness, well, yeah. then we're in trouble, you know, and America yes. is not great. And obviously, the uh, even the, the end of the Cold War uh, was a particular challenge. Where does America situate itself in the world? And when it comes to trade and when it comes to international defense and security, all these questions that have been there uh, for a long time. And when I was a child, you know, America was cel celebrating 200 years of its independence in 1976 and the country was in a bad way yes. uh, at that stage 
Um, and again, that that led to an awful lot of disillusionment with politics and the political system, but not on the level that we have witnessed in recent years, because there was always a sense in the 1970s that you could rely on the robustness yes. uh, of the system that they put in place, which is all sorts of, of, of admirable uh, elements to it. But what's happened in more recent times is that that is being completely undermined, which is what makes it most terrifying. And I mean, there are wider uh, implications of this mindset as well. I mean, we have a version of it in Britain at the moment as well. Yes. Uh, and you can see the current turmoil that's being experienced. And in, in some respects, the kind of economic uh, issues that have arisen in relation to inflation and interest rates and, you know, the humiliation of, of the, the decline in status and the decline in the trustworthiness of, of the British economy and so on. There are records of the 1970s there. But again, there's a wider issue there about making Britain great again. Yes. You know, and in many respects, it, respects, it's about making England great again. But you can see the parallels. In tandem with that, we've had a distortion uh, of, of both history and a debasement of current politics. And there are a lot of senior Tories who were involved in the Brexit project who were particularly interested in history. Yes. But in how history was not being used as they saw it. Michael Gove, for example, who would have been Secretary for Education about 10 years ago, was adamant that left-wing historians were undermining a patriotic national narrative, that they were you know, denigrating patriotism by the way they were teaching history, because they were suggesting, well, there was much in uh, within British history to be uncomfortable about, and the empire nostalgia of the early 21st century was actually a very dangerous thing, because again, it involved denial uh, and forgetting uh, some very unsavory aspects of their history. But that was wrapped up in the Brexit project. And that yes. sense of us, uh, I remember talking to Richard Evans about this, um, who was one of the one of the historians targeted. Um, and it, this was actually a, another Dublin festival of history some years ago. Uh, and Richard Evans uh, was adamant at the time of the centenary of the First World War in 2014 that Britain had to be honest about its war of what yes. that war had done to Britain and what it had meant for people. And he was accused of, of denigrating uh, patriotism. Margaret Thatcher had a version of this in the late 1980s when she didn't like the new curriculum that was being proposed uh, by the Curriculum Review Group because she felt there wasn't enough patriotic enthusiasm uh, in the <laughs> curriculum. And again, this is about propaganda and it's about the, the uses, but also the abuses of history. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. 
United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Let me ask you about a quote of Winston Churchill's, which I find fascinating and persuasive. But maybe you can unpersuade me. History, Churchill said, is written by the victors. And when you look at history, it is reasonable to agree with that sentiment. What do you make of that? Well, just look at Churchill himself. Picture Churchill writing in his study, making a lot of money out of his tremendously successful books, writing multi-volumes of the history of his own times. Um, Of course, uh, history (laughs) is being written by the victors, literally uh, in the case of of Winston Churchill. And it's also, of of course, about securing his own reputation uh, for posterity. It was very interesting in recent times. You know, you were aware of of all of these controversies over statues and memorials. Yes, indeed. uh, You know, to the great icons of the past. Which continues. Which continues, absolutely. And it's a very interesting thing, even in in, in relation to Churchill, where there were questions being asked. uh, This was always, you know, the man who won the war, who saved us from uh, Hitler, from the Nazification of the globe. And people were then beginning to look at the wider context around Churchill, uh, about the difficult aspects of, of his own history and his own involvement uh, in, in, in conflict and what was omitted from the historical narrative. Yes, And trying indeed. to resurrect, indeed, some of the things, the dreadful things that he had said about the Imperial Project and about India uh, and so on. And we, we could think about that in our own context, in the Irish context. But again, that sense of being extraordinarily selective in how you present history, even when you're writing it in multiple volumes. And of course, that's about controlling the narrative. And when we talk about victors, the losers often don't have the tools at their disposal to write the history. When we're, as historians, looking at sources, they tend to be sources that are generated by an elite. We don't necessarily yes. have the voices from below. I mean, that has changed in the in the sense that, you know, there has been a reframing of our historical inquiries. Like, we are much more interested in how history and how conflict and how social change impacts on um, citizens in a more general way, ordinary people, as we'd call them. But we don't always have the same kind of, of sources because that strata of society doesn't generate the same kind of, of sources because it doesn't have access to power um, to the same degree. So, like, we always have to be conscious of how selective and elite our sources are. We don't get a full picture, and we shouldn't pretend uh, we have a full picture. And I think Churchill is the embodiment of that. Let me ask you about a quote from Karl Marx. It's been attributed to many people, actually, Hegel, Marx, and Napoleon, in fact. The quote is, history repeats itself, the first time as tragedy, the second as farce. 
Well, uh, sure it repeats I, itself the second time as tragedy as well. <laughs> well <laughs> exactly. I'm sure you're familiar with the quote. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but the, and I've never really got to the bottom of that quote, but let me just try and apply it to today. If mm. you look at Europe, if you look at the United Kingdom, mm. look at Brexit. Brexit was an exercise in nationalism. I, I'm sure we both agree on that. Yeah. But on Sunday in Italy, Mussolini's, a fan of Mussolini, who, who was, of course, an ally of Adolf Hitler. They have elected now in Italy a, a woman called Maloney. She's the first um, woman to be prime minister of Italy. They are, uh, her party, the Brothers of Italy and neo-fascists, that's their roots. In Sweden, the previous week, a party, a government containing the Sweden Democrats, who are actually even more associated with Nazism, was elected. In Hungary, we have Viktor Orban, mm. and in Poland, we have a, a right-wing, extreme right-wing party, which for the moment is clinging to the West because they're afraid of Russia. But as a historian, do you see echoes of the 30s? Do you see signs of immigration, in this case, being maybe the catalyst for a lot of these, the, the rise of a lot of these people who are basically authoritarians yeah. and who basically reject the, the values upon which law in the West and free elections and all of that are based. I certainly do see echoes of the 1930s and they are very scary. I'm also conscious that we are living through a period where the last living links with the Second World War are on the way out. You know, there are yes. very few people alive today who are that living link with the uh, Second World War. And I'm mentioning that, I suppose, because of the, the ease with which things can be forgotten, especially when you don't have powerful testimony, personal testimony and direct yes. witnesses. That's that's part of it. But certainly, yes, there are echoes. And it's also about faith and fatherland. Yes. If you look at the success um, of that party in the recent Italian election, what they're emphasizing is is faith and fatherland and, you know, family values. And inherent in that is a hostility towards gay rights, uh, towards freedom of the media, and also a great hostility towards the European integration project. And that's perhaps one of the big differences, of course, between the 1930s and now, that we do have a European Union, a very large European Union, uh, and they've made it clear uh, that they are going to try and uh, resist the attempts to uh, rewrite the relationship with the European Union or rewrite membership uh, of the European Union. Yes. You know, Italy isn't talking about leaving the European Union, but it is talking about breaking the rules, particularly when it comes to debt. And this is not a crucial point, Eamon, because an awful lot of this comes back to money. You know, Italy is the second most indebted uh, member of the European Union. It's carrying a huge public debt. Um, and we can see historically how crises around debt and inflation and cost of living have fueled populism, have fueled these far-right movements, and then they fuse with these bigger ideas, again, of restoring greatness or, or breaking free of the shackles that are holding us back. In this case, they'll identify perhaps the European Union, but they'll also identify migrants because they're under the national fabric. Yes. Um, and we can see that in Orbán's Hungary as well. Um, and again, this is also about the transition. You know, uh, when you consider what happened 
I mean, I remember the excitement in 1989 when I came in first to study history with the the fall of the Berlin Wall and that sense yes, of an indeed. exciting new phase. But it was a huge challenge as well uh, to manage it and the speed and rapidity with which things happened. Uh, and, you know, we're still dealing with the after uh, effects of that. You know, it's not about a, a settled order. Um, all of these fault lines and cracks, um, they're there. And they're being exacerbated, they're being expanded, and they are using the same tools that have been used historically. Uh, and that's very depressing. Yeah, I'm sure you remember too the book that was written around that time of the fall of the Berlin Wall and indeed the collapse of the Soviet Union. It was called The End of History by an American academic. I think his, his uh, belief was that liberal democracy had finally triumphed. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, he's still yeah. he's still working. Uh, yeah. my, his name is Casey for a moment. Yeah, um, and, but, but I mean, even, I was thinking even recently when Mikhail Gorbachev died. Um, you know, the, the the humiliation that came later in his career. You know, when he yes, when he stood yes. for high office once again, and there was a detestation of him because what they had lost, as the Russians saw it, was certainty. Yes, and you know, the opening up, the end of the Cold War, the market changes that brought great instability, and people then need to identify who the enemy is and who the architect of their misfortune uh, is. And you're getting you get versions of that obviously in Eastern Europe as well, um, in that they are looking now at the at the Western project or the or the European Union project and say, well, who's benefiting from this, uh, and what does it mean in relation to our traditions and our history and our sense of self. Um, but it can also be manipulated. And this is what's going on at the moment in relation to, to Putin. I'll mention this about identifying your internal enemies and your yes. external enemies. There was a book I was reading recently by Andrea uh, Kovalev, who, who, who would have worked with the Russian um, Ministry for Foreign Affairs. And his book is called Russia's Dead End. And he gives that very strong sense of the wider sweep of Russian history, yes, and, and this battle for a monopoly on uh, on historical truth and all again all the uh, distortion uh, that goes on uh, and what is very conveniently forgotten, as well as as what is selectively remembered, and it's a very dangerous cocktail. But you know, versions of that go on in every society, and societies need strong foundation myths. And I mean, we've been dealing with with the fallout from that in this country for a long time. There were a lot of historians who were very vocal in Ireland in the 60s and 70s, some of whom were labelled revisionists. I mentioned F.X. Martin there writing about 1916, but you also had people like T.W. Moody and, and, and the Dudley Edwards um, of the Irish historical world uh, yes. who were talking about the dangers the dangers uh, of amnesia, but also myth-making, particularly in the context of the Troubles, yes. where you know you have both Republicans and, and loyalists or unionists who will not demand a complex vision of their own past because not, that's not the currency they deal with. Yes. They deal with absolutes. They deal with certainties and definitive versions of history, which are no more than pseudo history or propaganda. So, I mean, we've had versions of that ourselves. You know, we could say we've come a long way. Um, I mean, the very fact that we're talking about this Dublin Festival of History, history is taken very seriously in this country. Yes. Which is why a festival like this is is, is taken very seriously, because people are interested uh, in nuance, they're interested in, in new research, but they're also interested in the idea of new generations asking new questions. You'll see an awful lot of young historians speaking during this festival who are writing very, very different narratives and analysis uh, than the previous generation, making use uh, of new sources. But we have quite a sophisticated 
engagement with history uh, in this country. And if it is being uh, controlled or distorted, we're likely to challenge it. And that was right. one of the reasons why we campaigned uh, in relation to keeping history as a core subject when it came to secondary school students, so that they would be equipped to challenge as well. Yes, I mean, that was proposed recently, wasn't it? This yeah, but idea and it's that, been settled now that, you know, it will be a core subject. Yeah, uh, and, has, and to, has to be. And has to be. And, yes. and again, that ultimately is about a, pool of, uh, a tool of empowerment, you know. And I don't yeah. want to exaggerate it. I'm not suggesting that this is going to transform everything and is going to right all of the wrongs. But at least we, and we're 100 years old as a state this year now, we've taken the business of history seriously. That doesn't mean you know, we're not still going to be uh, subjected to propagandist uh, versions of our history. But sometimes we're talking about countries um, who we would consider to be in a very volatile state at the moment that don't have that same maturation. And they right. haven't. And like, it's not all their fault. You know, they haven't had democracy of we, as we have understood it. We are one of the few democracies that has endured unbroken for yes. a century. And sometimes we don't make enough of that. Uh, it's a very important achievement. I mean, we have all our woes and our problems that we're, we're well aware of. But that commitment to democracy, to parliamentary democracy, we haven't had, thankfully, in this country, the rise of, of the far right. No, and it's, it's a remarkable fact. And we have had immigration. We've welcomed immigrants. Uh, we don't have a a right-wing newspaper. We don't have Fox News. And these guys and girls out there who would like there to be a reactionary force in our society, mm. they can't get the project off the ground yeah. because we're f very fortunate, I think, that we f we we nip it in a bud as soon as it rises yeah. its ugly yeah. head. Yeah. And there's, there's, no gar there's no guarantee, of course, that that uh, w will continue to be the case. And, you know, we always have to be conscious oh, yeah, no, of, course. Of, of, of what can change and, and how things can change. And again, uh, that's not just about us, you know, that's about external influences. It's about a yes. wider international volatility. And this is the thing about what we're living through at the moment, that volatility, that unpredictability. Um, and, there are, you know, we're, we're, we're chasing, a lot of countries are chasing uh, at the moment and uh, dealing with crises that they don't really have the answers to. Can I ask you finally, there are two questions I want to ask you, uh, Dermot. When you look across Europe, and I mentioned Italy, Sweden, Hungary, Poland, is history repeating itself in those countries and likely there will be more to come in other countries? And the other question really is about the rise of uh, social media, the internet, and its influences. How how dangerous, insidiously, is that? In relation to the first question, you can't help feeling that there's a momentum there now yes. in relation to the far right. Um, and it, it is, it, it, it's building. Now, you know... And Brexit it, was very much a part of that, only that it, it wasn't expressed as crudely, shall we say. That, that's a very good way of putting it. You know, it wasn't uh, expressed as crudely, but you can't help feeling that even what we've witnessed in recent times in relation to leadership or so-called leadership in Britain, you know, that's a manifestation of it. Yes. You know, you have someone leading a, a country that prides itself on its history uh, and its, you know, democratic robustness. Um, not taking that business seriously at all, you know? Yeah. Uh, so th th there is a momentum uh, around that. What's going to be a great challenge now, say in Italy, for example, is, is to translate this recent success 
uh, into a meaningful political project. You know, uh, and that's true of other countries as well. Do they actually have a realistic program? Uh, can they implement it? Um, and what is that going to mean in relation to alliances? You know, yes. what's it going to mean, mean in relation, not just to the European Union, but that wider sense of making common cause? Look at who the, you know, who's congratulating um, the new Italian leader. Um, you know, wh where's the big support coming from? And this is an Italian yeah. leader who's expressed approval and support uh, for Putin as well. Yeah. Uh, so there certainly is that, that that fear. And in relation to the second question, social media, see, this is also, of course, related to the political dynamics and how elections are fought now and how campaigns uh, are yes. run. To me, it's a great enemy of history because it distorts and it simplifies. Um, yes. Like we've had our own controversies at home where, you know, people would tweet uh, about certain very sensitive historical matters or, or controversies or indeed atrocities. And the idea that you can do history through tweet is obnoxious. <laughs> it's the enemy yes. of nuance. It's the enemy of any kind of elaboration or, or meaningful engagement. It's about sound bites, And it feeds into that wider crisis of, of information and the fragments uh, that I was talking about. So again, that is a very dangerous way to communicate both your, you know, political message and your political campaigns, but also in how you deal with your history. And of course, it was Donald Trump's main weapon when he was in the process of acquiring converts. A final question about Trump. If he were to um, come back in 2024 as president of the United States, now that's there are many obstacles in his ways, but in his way, but this guy uh, tends to slither around them. Yeah. Would we, as Europeans, and indeed others in what we consider to be the free world, and I know that's uh, a, <laughs> a phrase that mm. could be taken apart, we would be in a very serious situation, wouldn't we, if if the West was depending for defence of its values on the Donald. Oh, absolutely. And, and we also have to consider the threat of nuclear war. Yes, Not right just now. because of, of, of that, but also because of now. And, you know, Trump is the kind um, of idiot uh, yeah. who, of course, would be very disingenuous, uh, but also very volatile uh, in relation to that serious matter. I don't think that there's a political future for Donald Trump in the way that you're talking about. Um, what I think we need to look at more closely now is who within the Republican family yes. in America is going to attempt to try and fill his shoes or chart. Um, well, I've had, I've had a, a similar look. course. Uh, there's a guy in, in Florida, DeSantis, and there's a fella in Texas called Abbott, and they're not pretty. No, they're not, they're not at all. But I mean, Donald Trump is too old. Uh, and obviously, he's a myriad of legal difficulties at the moment, which may or may not. I mean, he may, of course, try yeah. and uh, try the same tactic again in relation to the witch hunts and so on. But I think he's running out of road, ultimately, and he's also too old. But the question is, can that legacy of Trump yes. be built into a very dangerous and more coherent uh, political movement, because his tools could be in, employed in the hands of, of a younger generation who might try and make something more robust and, and, and longer lasting out of it. And that, again, could, could bring the world into a, an even more perilous state. Okay, Dermot, it's been a great pleasure talking to you this morning. Uh, we're very grateful to you. Dermot Ferreter is Professor of Modern Irish History at UCD, and he writes a column every Friday in the Irish Times which is unfailingly interesting. We're grateful to Dermot 
And let me remind you that there is the Dublin Festival of History running right now until the 16th of October in libraries around the city. It's free to join and go in, and I'd urge you to do it. It's fascinating. Uh, we're grateful to do it to all of you for listening. That's all we have time for now. We'll talk to you soon. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.